Welcome to Sincerely Two Imperfect Therapists, a podcast where we discuss boundaries, money stories, healing within relationships, the therapeutic process, social justice from both the therapist and the client perspective, and the nuances of the human condition. While we may not have all the answers, we use our expertise and personal experiences to guide our discussions that we hope spark curiosity and reflection within yourself. Please note, this is a podcast that's not intended for supervision, therapy, or guidance for your individual needs. Rather, we intend to raise awareness on important topics. We do our best to provide content warnings, though if any topics are upsetting to you, please seek local emergency support. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am exhausted today, but I'm hanging in there. Yes, you showed up. I am here. Yes. Surviving. (laughs) (laughs) The thriving piece is a little questionable, but I am surviving. (laughs) (laughs) Some days all we can do is survive. Yeah. Especially with uh, everything that's going on in the world. Yeah. 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 It's uh, just got to take it day by day. Exactly. Yes. Day by day. Speaking of taking things day by day, um, I often, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, we're going to be talking about today is ambivalence yeah, um, and how that um, is a part of the therapeutic process. Um, and I don't know how you explain ambivalence um, or how you um, counteract that in, in sessions with your clients, but um, it's curious that you said day by day because that, <laughs> that really is it, is session by session, um, little bit by little bit, because sometimes working on ourselves is exhausting and it can also be very trying sometimes to look at those deeper parts of ourselves and say, oh, you mean I really have to take this out? Yeah. I have to work through it? That's my stuff? Yeah. Can In be front really of daunting. You, who maybe my therapist, you, my therapist, who mm-hmm. I don't really maybe have a solid relationship with yet if it's early in the therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting topic to think about. And I think it's, um, I want to say delicate because mm-hmm. I think sometimes there can be a tendency among our community as therapists to view ambivalence as strictly negative that Mm -hmm. it's all just ah, well they just don't want to be here and I think that can kind of shift the conversation a little bit and so I think for me when I think about ambivalence especially when it comes to how I handle it in session is really curiosity like oh Mm -hmm. just always trying to be curious where is it coming from why is it happening and is it perhaps even a function of what I have going on. Like, am I projecting my interpretation of ambivalence somehow onto them? Am I um, causing that dynamic? So um, that wasn't exactly a definition for how I, how I would <laughs> understand ambivalence, but I think it's delicate. And I see that as more so an opportunity to lean in with curiosity rather than um, – a place of contention. Yeah. Um, so working with people on what's coming up. Uh, does that, that make was, sense? Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking <laughs> about that, the first thing that popped into my head was um, how helpful EMDR training um, has been in me formulating ideas on how to um, approach. Sorry, my words are not wording today. It's okay. Um, <laughs> it's a common theme for us. Yes. <laughs> um, with with clients, how to deal with um, with clients, and oftentimes I, I look at 
similar to what you said, what's that blocking belief? What's that, mm. um, what's that perhaps even feeder memory that's kind of getting in the way of this client being able to process whatever really hard information is coming up to them? Mm. Um, and, and I, I don't know, my brain kind of segued here. Um, welcome yeah. to a podcast hosted by <laughs> therapists with ADHD. Um, love being neurospicy. Um, I had come across a therapist TikTok page where she was um, talking about, I guess she works as a supervisor in, you know, um, in her job. And she said she noticed that a lot of incoming clinicians, um, for whatever reason, are not being given strategies on how to deal with ambivalence. Um, Mm. And it's almost like, well, the client doesn't want to work or the client doesn't want to work through their stuff, so I don't know what else to do. And there isn't like that, like you said, curiosity to right. lean in and figure out where is that coming from? Because there's so many reasons why someone may not yeah. be ready to open up, even though they are sitting on your couch. Right. That sitting on your couch is is the first, well, calling is the first step, right? Sure. And even that can be really scary. And then sitting down. Um, I think we mentioned this a couple episodes back where I said, you know, it's not my strongest suit. I'm not going to sit there and turn clients away um, because it's maybe sometimes something that I still need to explore is why is this, you know, um, so hard for me is to help clients kind of deal with this ambivalence. And yeah, I remembered that we took a class in grad school <laughs> called motivational interviewing. Yeah, um, there was one week where we actually talked about <laughs> Well, that's a whole different. (laughs) No, it was called the interview. It wasn't even called motivational interviewing. And and that was actually the one week that we had that class, which I think was mandatory, right? Yeah, it was required for our program. I don't understand how that was ridiculous. Um, It was one week of motivational interviewing. I still have that. um, (laughs) I still have the PowerPoints. You know how like you you can print out. Yeah, I do. That was like six years ago. I was looking through my trunk because I was I was cleaning out my closets and I was like, holy crap, this is in there. I still have the PowerPoint printout of the motivational interviewing. And I was looking back and I was like, wow, this is actually really useful. I cannot believe that he only spent a week on that. And really, when it's grad school, it's basically what a day like right. that's it. <laughs> it's a day. It's a right. class. That's it. A three, one three hour class on motivational interviewing. Yeah. Um, and it, I actually thought it was pretty valuable. But what, what are your, what is your take on how to also maybe some strategies to deal with with that? Um, I, I mean, I agree. You brought up um, the benefit of our EMDR training. Mm-hmm. And I think just because that's the lens that I work through 95% of the time, um, I think I'm often leaning into uncovering those beliefs Mm -hmm. but honestly a lot of times it's rolling with it like Mm. I we're not going to get anywhere by me trying to convince you to want to be here we're not going to get here get anywhere by me trying to convince you that it would benefit you to dive into talking about your trauma it it that we're not going to get anywhere if it's my agenda I think therapy is honestly so unusual I know we've talked about this before but our this relationship is so different simply because the terms of it and the expectations around it are that you come and sit on my couch and just share your whole life with me Mm -hmm. automatically that you just share that's what you're here for right and it that approach to me just feels so I get it I get that the I love doing deep awesome work with clients 
so I can understand the kind of maybe tendency or rush to get there. At the same time, that's not how relationships work. Right. Right. So you are big on we are modeling healthy relationships. If Mm -hmm. we're modeling healthy relationships, obviously, again, it's going to be a little different because it is therapy, but it's not helpful if I push you or try to unearth things that you're not ready for. And so sometimes, so what that comes back to is sitting with it. You're ambivalent. You don't really want to be here. Let's just talk about stuff that really has nothing to do with therapy, honestly. Right. Like, I do that oftentimes with teens who are um, not interested in coming, but Mm -hmm. their parents are asking them to come, that there are some sessions where we sit and we talk about literally your favorite movie the whole time. I'm not making interpretations. I mean, probably a little subconsciously I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we're just talking about the funny parts, the funny scenes, what you liked, what you didn't like, how often you've seen it, the inside jokes you have about it with your friends, um, and I will roll with that to just allow the conversation to be organic and have them be able to see me as the human that I am, um, see if there's any relatability that they connect with. Um, So it's really about rolling with it, I think, for me. There's not a whole lot of set technique in that, but just sometimes it's just sitting. Like I've sat and just colored with clients and just listen to music. What do you like? Let's put on your favorite playlist and we will sit and color and Maybe we speak all of a handful of words to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get to know that them coming into that next session, there's going to be a little bit more of that bond and for comfortability. Sure. Right, right. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, one of the things that they really do drill in our head is building rapport with our clients is, like you said, yes, we know that therapy is a place where you can talk about you, but it, it doesn't always happen right away, right? Yeah, there are some people that, can sure. connect with somebody and or they're talk so about used all the to things, it, right? They're or they're so like, used to it. Here's yeah. my PowerPoint of trauma, <laughs> yes. da, 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 da. right there, <laughs> little clicker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but you're right. There are some client, like I mean, now mental health is being talked about. It's something that is little by little, still not as fully as we would like it to be, but True. little by little destigmatized, where people aren't just thinking that therapy is reserved for individuals who have, you know, either very deep trauma or other things going on in their psyche that it's literally if if you need some coping skills, if you need to develop or just simply understand why you get angry, but you don't seem to be feeling anything else. That's what therapy can also be helpful for that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I wonder how much of, you know, ambivalence is also tied to that avoidance piece of, well, right now this is just too much to talk about. And we know mm-hmm. that um, with anxiety um, comes this cycle of avoidance, right? Is Avoidance is helpful in the short term. In the long term, it makes her anxiety a little bit worse. And so, um, you know, when I work with my clients, sometimes I provide some psycho It's just like, here, this information's here. We don't have to necessarily do anything about it, but let's just notice it. Let's just notice what's happening. Let's just look mm-hmm. it in the face. And when we want to touch it, we'll touch it. And if we don't want to touch it, we'll just leave it there. It'll just kind of be there in the background. And when you're ready to visit that, we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, how do you also maybe conceptualize or explain avoidance um, to clients and how that might tie into some ambivalence to either talk about something or to process something. 
just to clarify, are we talking about kind of that difference between avoidance mm-hmm. and ambivalence? Mm-hmm. So ambivalence being kind of this like complacent, passive, just like, eh. Yeah. And avoidance it almost being like a straight up, I'm not going there. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, that's challenging. I think I, well, I think a lot of times just in my own experience, I've seen a lot more avoidance than I do ambivalence. Um, where people are, they found themselves in my office. They know that, that it would be helpful to talk about some of these things. But anytime we get close to it, it's like, yep, nope, nope, nope. That is just, nope, we're not going there. And so it's not necessarily about convincing them in my perspective. It's not about convincing them or working with them to see the benefit of therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times they already know, know that. Um, but there are these internal blocks that keep coming up that, um, can come up for a variety of different reasons, at least in my perspective and versus with ambivalence where it's kind of this, you're on the fence. You don't even really know if this could help, help you and see the benefit in it. So we can talk about that, but with avoidance, um, I think I, I go back a lot to kind of that window of tolerance, right? That when we start to encroach on that higher end of our window of tolerance right when we start to threaten going out of that and beyond what our bodies and our minds are able to handle at that period of time um, I look to expand that window of tolerance so thinking about how we can slowly introduce discomfort um, and build that tolerance without totally flooding them with emotion and trauma because I think if we and this is especially true for people who are familiar with EMDR and trauma work that if we push someone who is actively avoiding too far too soon Mm -hmm. it can be re-traumatizing and I think it's a again really hard to lay out clearly simply because that will scare some early like newly trained EMDR therapists away at times right like well I don't want to mess up my client right right. by pushing them too far what if they can't handle it and I think that clients are naturally resilient and strong and are able to recover if we end up going outside that window of tolerance that you have that relationship to fall back on um but really looking at walking that fine line between um at what point am I pushing too far too hard and there's no repair it's just a Mm -hmm. constant push 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 and at what point am I pushing to clinically help expand that window of tolerance build rapport create trust help them learn to advocate when they're outside of that window of tolerance when we need to take a step back um to benefit them yeah yeah that was a beautiful explanation and awesome segue because um one of the other things that you know we're thinking about is the difference between pushing and challenging I think that can be a fine line and it's definitely unique to every client whereas um you know we have different clients in our caseload although they may have similar presentations or similar stories their their readiness may fall in different 
levels, right? So somebody might be ready to open up about one thing where a client, another client is not, and they're really just here to maybe Mm -hmm. focus on, all right, well, I'm feeling these things. Let's just work on some coping skills before I tear open these other things. Whereas some other clients, I know in my experience, come on my couch and they're like, take it out, take it out now. (laughs) Um, And they're just, you know, ready to dive deep um, in there. And um, when I was thinking about like, pushing versus challenging, I can't help but think about like where sometimes different populations show up and and particularly in agency work. Mm. Um, So in agency work, you know, we would get a lot of mandated clients. And how do we navigate um, rolling with ambivalence to change? Um, Also some emotional avoidance, right? Because a lot of people who are ambivalent to change are also avoiding something um, in in their mindset um, in you know their emotions that maybe they're not ready to face and I think a couple episodes back we had talked about um, I don't exactly remember what it was (laughs) at this moment but um, mandated clients came up and when I was writing up notes for this episode um, I started thinking about like how helpful is it really to mandate people to come to therapy when we know that therapy is such needs it works best when it's intrinsically motivated yeah how how helpful is it really I get why it's often recommended and I love to see that people understand that this is a place where they can do a lot of inner deep work Um, and so when someone is exhibiting behaviors that you know it would benefit for them to talk to somebody about it they get mandated to therapy but how helpful is it really? Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really interesting discussion there because I think what that comes to is changing our expectation and yeah. I, not necessarily our expectation as therapists, perhaps, um, but almost the expectation of the system that's mandating them, right? right? Whether it be the legal system that's mandating them or it be... Um, like a release from a program that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a step down situation in a level of care um, or even a less formal mandate and more of like the ultimatum type, right? Right. Where like somebody has given somebody else an ultimatum of you have to go to therapy. Um, That I think leveling our expectations with those clients is important. It's not that therapy or sitting with a therapist can't benefit them, but we have to almost reassess what are they actually going to get out of this. And if a court system, because that's probably like the most prevalent for mandated clients, is sending somebody to therapy because your child was involved in DCF. Is this person, is it reasonable to expect this person to unearth all of their trauma that likely is being passed down through generations and then perpetuated onto their child um, that put them in this situation? Is it reasonable to expect them to unearth all of that? Or is it better to level that expectation of, okay, you found yourself in this really sticky legal situation and here are the impacts on your child let's just do some psychoeducation like Mm -hmm. you said like that might just be putting out the information and talking to them about the impacts of generational trauma or um, just general baseline coping skills for you have 
difficulties with anger. Let's talk about how to reel that in. We don't have to talk about where it comes from or how to heal it or where to resolve it or anything like that. But we can come up with ways to help you to not get back in this Mm -hmm. situation that you're in. Um, That leveling that expectation is important. And I think, unfortunately, the larger, more macro systems that mandate clients have an expectation of like, if we send them to therapy, they will come out healed and we'll never have a problem ever again. Right. Right. And it's just that it does not make any sense. Exactly. And it's just not how that works. It's, um, I mean, I think about it in my own journey. There's, I've been in therapy for years, Mm -hmm. um, you know, taking a few months off here and there, but and I'm a therapist, you know, yeah. and, and even it wasn't until recently that I started working on some really, really deep stuff that I had really no idea it was something that needed to be worked on until recently. And it's interesting when we get like, I know that we just we have an episode about insurance um, where we talk about like, how realistic is it, right? These expectations, like sometimes you'll have these insurance companies that say, yeah, we're like only going to approve like 12 sessions. Um, so good luck. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's not a lack of faith on what the client's able to do, but there's just so much. Yeah. And given that therapy is, is still, you know, we're still working on making it accessible, but also just that it wasn't talked about. It wasn't something that people looked for until recently. Sure. That means that uh, and when we saw it in COVID, right, post-COVID, there were people coming in saying, yeah, I'm just a little depressed or I'm just a little anxious. And then biopsychosocial, maybe a couple sessions later, it's like, whoa, yeah, you're not just depressed. There's so many layers. Yeah. And it's it's yeah, it's kind of surreal knowing that people were really walking around with all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So many years of stuff just normalize people thinking that that was okay mm-hmm. and that they didn't deserve any better. That just, that's so, that sucks. I am hearing so many different cultural factors tying into that. Oh, yeah. As well. Mm-hmm. Right. That in certain communities, there is. I mean, as a whole, there is a stigma of yep. around therapy, but then in different communities, there are huge stigmas about getting help. Oh, yeah. And so is the person who's ambival- ambivalent or avoidant that's sitting on your couch just that's it? Right. Or is there something deeper here happening? Because they showed up. They yep. recognize, okay, therapy is something that people say should help. Um, but are we running into blocks that are cultural? Right. And what factors are at play there even as you present in the room, right? Like me as a white therapist, I understand sitting in front of a black man, mm-hmm. there's going to be a totally different... I mean, we yeah. might not be able to have a functional therapeutic relationship because they might benefit no they more than likely yeah. would benefit <laughs> from being with somebody who can relate to their experience more than I can right so even with mandating are we considering what type and right. who they would even be willing to sit in front of oh 100% and I'm, I'm so glad that we kind of segues into that cultural piece is I actually just had an appointment with my doctor 
<laughs> um, and she had mentioned, um, I don't know how we got into it, but she asked, I don't know why doctors do this too. They ask you like what you're, what you do for a living. And I'm like, yeah, uh, why do you, why, why is that? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's for like just the demographics, which is fine. Okay. Um, so I told her I was a therapist and she mentioned, she goes, oh, wow, that's like really great work you're doing. You guys must've also gotten swamped just like we did. And I'm like, oh Yeah. We, you guys got swamped during COVID. We got slammed after it. Um, And we still are, right? And listen, we love that everyone's seeking out services. Our issue is not with people seeking services. It's for the macro systems that don't make it easy for you guys to get services or for us to provide them. Yeah. Um, And we actually got into that conversation and she asked um, one of the questions there was, you know, is there any history like trauma history or anything that you want to talk about? And I indicated some of mine and she, we had a little brief talk about it. And I said, you know, it's, and I know we've talked about this before too. One of the things was talking about how people from our older generations, right? Cause we're seeing a lot of things on TikTok about people going low contact to no contact with their parents. Yeah. And I do a lot of that work with my clients because my, you know, I really hone in on relational trauma and healing from that. So compassion does go a long way. It's understandable though that after years and years of trying to repair a relationship, somebody doesn't want to offer that compassion anymore of, I get that you went through your stuff too. That doesn't give it a right to, for me to continue to tolerate whatever hurt Mm -hmm. um, you have that you're not willing to work on. And so, you know, I was pleasantly, um, not surprised, but like, yes, surprised that the doctor went on and talked about, you know, like, I think it's such a good point that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people forget that you know, especially in, in individuals of my culture, Latino culture, um, Caribbean, all of that, they didn't mm-hmm. have access or easy access to healthcare services. So, you know, you will see a higher level of medical issues within the black and brown community because previously nothing was accessible. And even if we were allowed to have insurance, could we afford the insurance? Yeah. And then even if we did, we could afford the insurance, was there any representation, anybody that looked like us, anybody that was able to treat us? And we still have that problem today. Absolutely. I could not find, and listen, it's not that I don't believe that a white doctor can treat me the same way because there's certainly clearly my doctor's evidence that she went to her cultural competency trainings and she didn't just snooze her way through it. Um, But my previous doctor was a Latina woman and I it felt like a gold mine when I was able to see her because not only was she able to vibe with me in the capacity that we are two Latina women in business, but also that how under there's there's no representation i tried to look for other latina doctors in the area there were none she was it yeah that's it she was it no there was no one else then i tried to look for a black female doctor there were none and it's like yeah that i would be hesitant too if i were to talk to somebody and they didn't look like me or i didn't feel like i could advocate enough because of years of generational trauma mm-hmm. of, t- of telling people like myself oh you can't speak up or if you don't have a voice i just it you know it oh, sorry i had to yeah. mention that i was just well, we're talking such a about good point rapport here and right. and so some of that is naturally brought into the room simply by what we can observe mm-hmm. right seeing somebody who 
appears to have a similar right. life experience as you is important. Absolutely. That representation, it, it can absolutely throttle forward our rapport building. And, and um, I think when we talk about ambivalence and avoidance, somebody who has a closer, rela- closer related experience might also be able to better pick up on some yeah. of those subtleties or some of those cues that come up. Um, the other piece of it, so it was, of course, as, as our brains do, right? <laughs> they just like jet off in all these different directions. It made me think of the different, um, this is a total segue, the different settings that we're in as well that yeah. might also add to ambivalence mm-hmm. or avoidance and or what might appear to be that case right um that I know for myself and I can only speak from personal experience but I know for myself I did telehealth uh as a client for two years mm-hmm. during the pandemic and I think I recently said to you I was like I don't think I've seen my therapist in person in over two years <laughs> I think I'm gonna ask if I can go back in the office yeah um and I have to admit that at home for me as a client, while I enjoyed being on the couch with my dog and the comfort of, you know, being able to like wake up five minutes before a session and like have a cup of coffee and whatever, um, there was also a block in knowing that my husband was right upstairs working in his right. office and inevitably because the way that our home is set up there would be times where he would come down make himself a cup of coffee and I would stop and just look at my therapist <laughs> and we would laugh and I'd be like hey honey um but and it's not that I didn't want him to right. hear or not things that I didn't care for him to know but I just there's a a privacy factor there that for these sure. are really deep things that I don't even know if I am aware of or comfortable admitting to myself and so I don't necessarily want even the person that I love dearly right. to be a part of that conversation, at least yet. And so I I can imagine that on, on one side of things, right, that as my therapist, there were probably times where I appeared avoidant or ambivalent because if we brought something up, I'd be like, yeah, but mm, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I've already <laughs> talked about that. Yep. Um, so I, I wonder how much that comes into play, especially when it comes to the way that telehealth has kind of shifted our ability to provide access to care and what role that plays in our perception of whether people are being avoided and I think that that again comes back to that curiosity I think that was a beautiful explanation is is ultimately that's what it is so one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this point is because of that I was really concerned to hear, and and unfortunately, I've seen it firsthand as well, is that, yeah, I I don't know what's going on in counseling programs these days, and I don't want to throw shade. I'm sure they're developing curriculum with what they think is best, but there are it's it's it comes down to let's move away from teaching so much about intervention and evidence-based protocols which listen important we are we practice with an um, evidence-based therapy but connection connection is so important for myself who worked with a lot of mandated clients who worked in conjunction with dcf for you know a couple of years what I saw time and time again is connection trumped intervention every single time. It's just even if the client isn't ready to talk about the things that they want to talk about because maybe they didn't think they did anything wrong. 
because you know what okay I'm not gonna sit here and and convince you that you did that's not my role it's not my role to judge you but to just establish a relationship because when we establish relationships with somebody else it becomes easier to talk to them Mm -hmm. and even a little bit easier to trust them yeah right yeah and so I think you know, with, with today's discussion, I think that was a beautiful way to, to tie it in. It's just that we just have to lean in with curiosity. That's all that we have to do to tackle something that can be as therapists, a little bit anxiety inducing, um, tiring is to sit with somebody who seems so ambivalent. Chances are that there's probably something else there. It isn't just a lack of, no, I don't want to. I think that that's really important to stay aware of um, because it's people don't fit neatly into the boxes that we'd like them to, right? That that would, wow, what a perfect world it would be if everybody just fit neatly into a category, but we cannot do that to people. And so it raises the question of why would we expect them to all respond perfectly Mm -hmm. to the interventions that we're trying to implement not every intervention is going to work for everyone and there I urge people to be I urge therapists to be creative that Mm -hmm. you learned something in school or even in a CEU or a training and this very much goes for EMDR right that there are eight phases to EMDR Mm -hmm. there's very specific protocols and ways that are taught to us to implement that therapy that are evidence-based however what that does is leave a lot of EMDR therapists at a standstill, that they do not actually move forward with using EMDR with their clients or Mm -hmm. they don't get as far as they would like because they're worried about implementing it to a T, that it is step by step by step by step. So something I talk a lot with my consultees about is, and this goes for even other modalities, just therapy in general, but allowing there to be an ebb and flow Mm -hmm. that you might transition into one type of intervention and then realize that did not go how I thought so we're going to move in a different direction and I think the same goes for even intakes right that your intake is not you know holding a clipboard in front of your face and going please tell me all of your family medical history (laughs) your intake should be tell me why you're here and you can fill in as you go along yes. and they talk about what's going on. If you need to lead in, it's a conversation that you lead into, oh, you mentioned that your sister lives in Idaho. I was wondering if any of your family has mental illness. Do you guys have a history of that? Yep. That you can find segues yeah. to try to make that more natural. And the same goes for our interventions. Like... So if there's somebody that's being ambivalent or avoidant, if you want to sit on the floor and color and listen to music, who says that you can't? Right. Who says that that's not a legitimate intervention or way to build rapport? Right. Ins- insurance companies, apparently. Well, <laughs> sorry. Oh, but it's, it's therapeutic. Shade. But it's there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like it just, so 
if we can be curious, if we can allow therapy to be flexible and recognize client autonomy, it can be whatever we make it, that it can be whatever they need it to be with some guidance and challenging as that rapport builds. Yeah. Right. That if for the first four weeks we need to sit on the floor in color, great, no problem. As you start to trust me, you might notice that I start to challenge you more. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to push you. Right. But I'm going to challenge you. Yeah. And that that's probably one of my favorite quotes that you've ever said back from like, what was that, like episode two or episode yeah. three? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I think um, one thing that also came up for me um, is that sometimes being able to roll with the ambivalence can be difficult when you are tired and burnt out as a therapist, when you're just kind of, for example, like I would see it a lot with my clinicians and even myself as a supervisor where, you know, we'd have these, we have clients, my clinicians would tell me about clients who were really ambivalent, didn't really want to talk. They would show up to sessions because they were mandated and quite literally would sit in silence. It's kind of like, well, what do we do? You know, we have like 20 people on a wait list trying to get in and it's like, it's, it's hard. And so I also want to put it out there for anybody who is listening um, into this conversation that it's it's understandable the frustration that you can get when um, rolling with ambivalence, but connection will take you a really long way um, mm-hmm. in in any thing with a client, right? Because your connection with a particular client will be the connection with that client. And so be the therapist that you know you know that you can be, and things will fall into place. Yeah. They will fall into place. Yeah. They will absolutely fall into place. It's part of trusting the process, right? right? We ask our clients to trust the process. And so we ourselves also need to trust the process that um, even if 10 minutes or 15 minutes of silence feels incredibly uncomfortable to mm-hmm. you, it might just be uncomfortable for you. Right. That it could be that they're able to sit with that and go, wow, they're they're not talking over me. They're not forcing this conversation. They're not Mm -hmm. bombarding me. They're really allowing me to process what's being put out there. And it, we really have to think about how that counter-transference can come into play, that your own discomfort doesn't necessarily mean that the client is feeling discomfort. And I think that also can go to the tendency to question from certain therapists to question at times our clients progress either if it's like monumental like they come in and do one EMDR session and they're like yeah wow that was great I'm done (laughs) (laughs) okay not that I don't believe that let's talk about what happened there for you and Mm -hmm. maybe it was maybe that was all you needed and that is fantastic like what a beautiful thing and if it wasn't then we can leave space to talk about that but if they're not making the progress if you've been in session with them for six months and you just feel like they're not making any changes is that coming from you Mm -hmm. and your desire for their progress to look a certain way or is that actually are you actually plateaued and we need to reevaluate what's happening in the sessions? It's a question I know I've had to ask myself at times because I know I care about my clients so much. Yeah. I want them to feel better. I want them to heal. And so I know that there is a part of me that tends to do that. And yep. I just need to breathe, sit back and trust that 
there's deep work being done there and we can look at that together yeah yeah Yeah. thank you so much for mentioning that actually because I've been struggling with that um actually for the last couple of weeks given the work that we do sometimes there is a moment where we plateau right it's it's always I always hear it um and this is how I know that they're really 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 trying to do the work not that they don't give other Mm -hmm. indications but when they're like oh but I'm just I'm putting in these boundaries and these people are just not wanting to respect them and then there's that like kind of like all right where do we go from here because I am (laughs) using all the skills and these people don't want to you know and it's that's a whole different conversation that we have but I have to remind myself that if I get those moments where I'm feeling like, oh my God, where do we go to next? Like this, what else do I say? What else do I do? They're feeling that times 10 because they're yeah. the ones living it. Yeah. And this is where I say connection and compassion go a long way because sometimes there is nothing that you can say, but yeah, that, that really does suck. Here you are doing all of this great work on yourself and you're putting in all of these coping skills you're working so hard out of session and because you're not getting the response that you expected it it feels it feels like for nothing but that's you know that's not the case here you are you're doing this for you and connection goes such a long way um and I'm I'm just really glad that you mentioned that yeah and that can even cause that in that internal experience can even cause what we interpret as like a sudden avoidance, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything was going great. Things were going good or so you thought. And now somebody that you've been working with for an extended period of time is suddenly shut down. Like they're not really as engaged. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're missing sessions more. They're showing up late there. And we can get curious about that. We don't, you know, not um, getting offended or, 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 cruel about it but being curious about why that's happening um and it can be some of that um hopelessness of like well damn it I've been putting in all this Mm -hmm. work and nothing's changed and so why should I even come to therapy anymore and try to engage in it because it's just not working for me Mm -hmm. and people present that in different ways right like your clients you were talking about maybe are more expressive about it and in other clients we might see more dissociation Mm -hmm. or disconnection numbing um that it's a shutdown and it I, I get again I'm there's like a as a client thinking about even my own experiences, like I've shared, been open on the podcast that I engaged in my own EMDR therapy. Mm -hmm. And there was a really long period of time where really what we processed in my EMDR therapy didn't really come up too much. And I'm now coming back into a place where I have kind of, I'm revisiting a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a, a factor of time in that too, that, um, I started EMDR, I was at a completely different place in my life and now I'm at a lot has changed. Yeah. And so naturally there are things that are going to come back up or kind of resurface and it we're reminding our clients that that doesn't mean that you haven't made progress. Right. But that there's always more to learn, mm-hmm. always more to do, always new experiences that are compounding the old experiences and how do we continue to face those with resiliency and um greater ease than shutting down and just well yeah then I'm I'm no longer healed and I'm no longer cured and that's it right. and I'm struck back to square one it's so funny that you talk about square one oftentimes I remind my clients um, I say realistically you you can't ever really be back at square <laughs> one they're like what do you mean I'm starting we're like 
you know too much to be at square one. Square one was where you were when you started here. You know too much in or like to be all the way back. Sometimes we take a couple steps back, but then we take some leaps forward and that's okay. Yeah. Um, because I, I definitely hear that. With my therapy, it's been the same. Yeah. Like, I really got to give it to her. She is just... <laughs> chef's kiss yeah yeah Yeah, but you have that relationship it sounds like yeah that you have that relationship with her and I might be making assumptions here but I'm just generalizing a little bit more I guess yeah that when we have a relationship with that person if we start to avoid or start to um get really down on ourselves about the progress or lack of progress that we feel like we're making um that relationship with our therapist can be one where there's a, wait a minute, whoa, Mm -hmm. whoa, 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 slow down. Where's this all coming from? Let's talk about that. And there can be some more of that, as I would say, like calling people on their bullshit. Yes. Um, Because that comes with rapport. Mm -hmm. And so whether ambivalence or avoidance is coming up at the beginning of sessions or with long-term clients, I think it's important to go back to that connection that that's the foundation of the relationship and it's all a learning process it's all important information and another question that comes up for me is at what point did this client did a client Mm. the client who's being ambivalent or avoidant experience something similar right that either they were set in front of somebody who cared about them showed them that they were interested in them and they shut down at what point did they experience that and it was a ruptured relationship Mm -hmm. or a trauma experience um at what point did they start to make progress and feel really good about themselves and then something negative happened and kind of threw everything into a tailspin that we can look at those we can look at ambivalence and avoidance as an indication that there's something else happening rather than just like you said, nope. Thrown in the towel. Eh, eh, mm-hmm. I don't care. That right. there's, it, it's a lot deeper, yeah. I think, for people. For and sure. as therapists, being aware of that is just extraordinarily important. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I had like (laughs) 12 hours to talk about this. Yes. (laughs) And also that this was around not to kick it to us too much. But you know what? Let's give ourselves credit where it's due that we can talk about this now and and give what we didn't know back when we were budding clinicians. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that we're kind of giving back that wisdom after having been in the field for um, a couple of years. Yeah. 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 I will. My last thought with that is that as you're saying, I feel like what I received during some of my early days of supervision with ambivalence or avoidance was often just, well, just sit with the silence. Mm-hmm. And that that was not e- exceptionally helpful to right. me. So I, I agree. I'm really glad that we can offer a little bit of a different perspective and reminder to, to people who might be struggling or facing this. For sure. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. as we wrap up, I just want to remind everyone to please rate, review, and subscribe. Please feel free to leave us messages on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, until next time, sincerely, sincerely to, to imperfect, imperfect therapists. therapists.